everyone, I'm Aram Mukumuf, and you're listening to another episode of the Product Innovation Series. Uh, every week, my guests uh, share their stories and wisdom on how they ship great product. Today, I'm joined by the founding partner at Highline Beta. Uh, his name is Ben Yoskovich. Sorry, uh, he co-authored Lean Analytics, uh, spoke globally about implementing Lean Startup and Lean Analytics, and previously co-founded Year One Labs, a pre-seed startup accelerator. Uh, just a quick word on Highline Beta, it's a startup co-creation company that launches new ventures with leading corporations. Ben, awesome to have you uh, on our show today. Thanks yeah, for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Awesome. So the first question I have is, um, well, it's very much in my realm and your realm, but we see so many founders starting companies and solving problems that, you know, just unfortunately sometimes just don't matter. So my first question is, what was the weirdest value proposition for a business that you've seen come across your plate? Oh, oh my goodness. Oh, my goodness. The weirdest, <laughs> the weirdest value proposition. I, I don't know if I can come up with the weirdest one, but questions like this, the thing that always jumps into my mind for some reason is carpooling. Okay. So, and the reason I say that is for a number of years, not recently, but so maybe five-ish years ago, before Uber was really sort of popular and they had, you know, different versions of it, every accelerator program on the planet had a carpooling company, carpooling startup, yeah. because it was one of these classic, uh, you know, commuting is a drag. Uh, you know, Uber is not scaled yet or, or whatever the case may be. Lyft is not uh, there yet. We need people who can carpool because they need inexpensive transportation. And so I remember startup after startup after startup, every accelerator, didn't matter where you were in the world, there was a carpooling company. So that's what pops into my mind uh, because it's just one of those classic, there's no problem there that carpooling solves. And so I, I just that that's the thing that pops into my head. Interesting. Uh is that still a case you feel as like a business that is needed these days? I just, it's uh well, no, I, I think a lot of it is, you know, it, it, what it, that comes down to is in theory, that sounds like an interesting idea and the economics makes sense. It's just, nobody wants to get into somebody else's car, which, you know, Uber solved because they sit in the back yeah. and, you know, they started with Uber black. And so it was more of a high-end luxury experience as opposed to this, like, I'm just getting into a weirdo's car and driving from Toronto to Montreal. Uh, so uh, so I think it just it's one of these good examples of not really appreciating human nature and, and the emotional and social components of something like carpooling as opposed to just the functional aspects of it, which is I just need to get from point A to point B inexpensively right. and I don't own a vehicle. So... Um, I, I would suspect less people are trying to start carpooling businesses today than were five to ten years ago. It's true. Yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a decline myself. Yeah, so that's all. <laughs> I consider that a win. Yeah. So not the strangest value proposition, but I would consider that I would consider that a win. I would say, you know, today it, you know, whenever there's a big trend, NFTs would be an example of that. Now, now every startup pitch has NFTs in it whether they make any reasonable sense or not. So, so this is just founders grabbing onto a mega trend that is getting everybody excited, even beyond just you know, the small tech ecosystem uh, and pitching it. Again, even before that, I would say subscription e-commerce. Mm -hmm. We take subscription e-commerce for granted today, 
but there was a time when it didn't really exist. And then when it started to get popular, everybody was trying to sell everything through a subscription because the business model is a lot better than selling transactionally. Uh, but people were trying to sell subscriptions for everything. So that's just an example of startups saying, oh, that's a trend, it's hot in that space. I'm just gonna mash it into my own, whatever vertical I'm in and hope to God it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is like, has there been any opportunity that's come your way either through a startup venture or through an enterprise where like it was all about those big keywords like mega trends, like AI, NFT, yeah. All you the know, time. and basically like the you know a rolodex of different kind of names when yes, in those course. situations like what do you where do you go and is i just call bullshit on a lot of that kind of stuff yeah all, all the time and, and you know again highline beta um works with big companies and and startups so really at that intersection between the two and there are a lot of differences between them of course uh but there's a lot of similarities as well in terms of they can all see megatrends they can all attempt to solve problems uh, or, or what are not real problems. And so, yes, you get, you get a lot of, so, I mean, again, think of AI, you, you said AI, right? So there was a point in time where every startup changed their domain name from a .com to a .ai. None of them had any data. None of them even had anybody on their teams that could actually do the AI, work. Yeah leverage AI, but they were all like, oh, okay, that's cool. We're just going to make it a .ai company. So yeah, you see this all the time. This is just how we, we operate, right? We, we're, we get excited about something. We as like the collective, you get excited about a trend, it pops, it gets into mainstream media, and then everything goes in that direction. Investors do the same thing, right? They follow uh, you know, essentially follow mega trends. So, yeah, it happens all the time, right? AI, machine learning, data science, you smush those together and somehow you solve all the world's problems. Exactly. Um, the question I have is, um, I'm sure you've come across this as well, but the reason why entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs I, um, in terms of like the rationale. So. A lot of founders say to themselves uh, or to others, like, yeah, I'm not doing it for the money. I'm doing it for, you know, a problem that I really believe in or I'm scratching my own itch. But then you get to speak to them and you, you know, quickly realize that they're kind of lying to themselves and it, it is about the money. Yeah. Right. Um, or like they think that it's easy to be able to create an easy business on um, what they're doing and they again it goes back to like them trying to profit from it you know from that standpoint um what would you say to founders or you know people building building a new product this day in terms of like what should be like your main why around what what why you do it so i, I would say being a founder is a terrible way to make a living i think we should just be very very clear about that um there is a small percentage of founders that make an enormous amount of money uh, and most do not. And you would be much better off getting a job, a good job, at a great company, let's say in the tech space, uh, and working your way up and earning an amazing living that is consistent and secure. So that, that's just math, right? So if, if you, whatever the number is, right? I can make $150,000 a year, $200,000, whatever, whatever the number is for my working life of X number of years, or I can roll the dice and win big and lose big. I mean, 
one is gambling mm -hmm. and one is just, you know, it's the same principle as you should invest in an RRSP when you're 18, not when you're 55 years old. So it, it's not a smart way to make a living. Um, so, so I think that's sort of the important thing to realize. It looks like it is because it looks cool and we celebrate the wins and we should celebrate the wins and the media celebrates the wins and we should celebrate those wins and we need people founding companies and trying to do things. Uh, and many of us have been very successful doing it, but it's, it's like, again, if you just think about it strategically from a financial perspective, it's probably not the best strategy. Uh, if you're just gonna look at math. Uh, in terms of why you should start coming, it should actually be to solve a real problem. And, and you know, you said it earlier, a lot of companies are started and they're not really actually solving a real problem that matters to somebody uh, or to enough people. And so the way I think about this over time is, you know, um, as I've, as, because I've been in this space a reasonable amount of time is you, you can, if you can do anything, literally anything you want, and obviously you can't do anything you want, but if you're gonna found a company, you're, you're basically saying, I'm gonna do whatever I want. Um, you really have to ask yourself, of all the things, why would I pick the thing I've picked? Why would I, I don't, I don't want it to be dismissive of any startup, but so I don't want to throw out any ideas, but why, why this? Of all the things you could do, I often ask founders that. I mean, it's not, it's not even because I think what they're doing doesn't make sense or is silly or is dumb. It's just like, why this? Of all the things you could have chosen, why did you make this choice? And a lot of them don't have a great answer for it. Maybe they saw an opportunity, they thought they were gonna catch a wave, they were gonna roll the dice. Uh, and, and that's not probably sufficient because when it gets tough, and it always gets tough, you bail when you're not really committed to it. Uh, as opposed to fighting through whatever crazy shit you're dealing with to say, no, no, but I gotta solve this problem because it actually matters. Um, I, I personally, can get pretty excited about a lot of things, um, you know, and and uh, because I, I I I gain excitement out of a founder's excitement for something, so I can I can get excited about all kinds of stuff, right? So, not everybody can cure cancer, not everybody can solve world hunger. That's not what I'm suggesting, but you should ask yourself again: if I can do anything, why am I doing this thing? And the answer is often not awesome. What are those moments that you hear a why that you're like, you know, that's that's what I wanted to hear. Maybe you don't say it verbally, but you say it in your head like that's that's the that's the answer I want to hear. What is an yeah, example so, of that? So certainly, you know, we can anything that if I've ever experienced a problem or, or somebody close to me has experienced some kind of challenge in life and somebody is coming to me and saying, oh, I want to go solve that problem. You know, again, if you put an investor hat on, you have to connect emotionally to an investor. So they're looking for some relevance. It's also why certain things get funded and other things don't get funded. So there's a bias there, which is a problem also. But so that's one, you know, just at an emotional level. Um, certainly something that is trying to do good in the world can make a, you know, you can, you can get, I hopefully you can get excited about that and a founder that's committed to doing um, good. But but even beyond that, it's actually solving a real problem. And I, I keep saying that, but I, I've invested in and worked on what I would call boring companies, right? That are solving a boring problem 
in a, in a vertical that nobody is like super stoked about jumping into. But it solves a real problem and creates value for people. And so that's the kind of thing that I can get excited about. Am I more excited about, you know, like fun stuff? Yeah, of course, I'm, I'm human. But boring stuff is okay also if it's really making a difference in people's lives. So that's what, that's what you're looking for is some signal that this could actually make a difference and create value. Awesome. And then once... Um once somebody, say a Canadian founder, creates a great business and um, they are successful in growing it and, you know, they get to that point where they want to exit, um, I want to ask you, and we talked about this, you know, briefly before, is about companies in Canada exit too early. Um, is that, why do you think that happens? Is it, uh, do you agree with that? Do you think they do exit too early? Um, do you think it's something to do with the Canadian mindset around it? Like, uh, I don't culturally? think it's anybody's business when somebody chooses to exit their company. I, I it, and I, again, I'm I'm pretty honest and blunt about these things. Uh, I think that that is a small market playing, assuming we're already in second place. Fiddle. Uh, that was a lot of analogies I just smushed together there, but. <laughs> I don't think it's anybody's business what you do with your company. You started it, you built it, you went through all the pain, which there was going to be a lot of, and then you made a choice to exit and walk away with whatever you're walking away with. And, and nobody has a responsibility really to keep going in order to build this, you know, and I'm air quoting this ecosystem. Right. I'd not to say the ecosystem is not important. It is important. And it's amazing when founders keep going and the company goes public or it exits for an enormous amount of money because it creates wealth for a whole number of people. And that has a, an enormous trickle down effect to other people. This idea of seeing a founder be successful and say, well, I, I think I can do what that person did is very empowering. Uh, so there's lots of reasons why you should keep going and but there's also lots of reasons why you should just exit and call it a day uh, and then maybe start another thing or start angel investing and creating value so um, I, I don't I don't know I, you know I think that there's not enough acquirers Canadian businesses that are acquiring other Canadian startups and taking a shot that I would suggest is an actual problem, which mm -hmm. then leads to American companies or, or global companies snagging these Canadian startups too quickly uh, when they could have probably kept growing. So, you know, yeah, I think the data tells you we have a lot of smaller exits, but I would never, ever, ever say to a founder, oh, oh no, 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 you owe something to Canadians. You have mm -hmm. to keep going. Like, please. Yeah. Back off is the way I would I would think about that. It's not your. It's not. It's not our business. It's not, and I 100% agree with you. There was a lot of uh, conversation in the community when uh, companies like I think Wave Accounting got acquired and some other ones, and I was like, oh, it's you know it, they could have held out longer. It's like, who are you to kind of judge? Oh, that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, like you go build Wave Accounting yeah. and then hold on longer and then tell them, oh, you should have done what I did. Like uh, this, 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 I really find this notion frustrating. We absolutely have to build and continue to invest in Canadian startups. 
without question, you have to do that. Um, and you need people starting companies because although it's maybe a lousy way to make a living, it is a great way to create wealth. Although a lot of, there's a lot of failure, right? But that's, that's how wealth gets created. And when you have a Shopify, as an example, a lot of people, that's, that's life changing for thousands, literally thousands of people. Let's say, I mean, I'm not even talking about the customers. I mean, it's life changing for the customers too, but for the employees of that company and all the people that then get investment as a result of all these angel investors being created is incredible. Those are amazing success stories. We absolutely want more of those. But we also, you know, what are you going to say? Oh, a $50 million exit, a $10 million exit. No, 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 that's not acceptable anymore. Like that's, that shouldn't even be part of the conversation uh, as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of people have had what we, we, you would consider early small exits and have gone on to contribute enormous value into, you know, this Canadian tech ecosystem. So, yeah, you know, if you've built a company 10 times as big as Wave Accounting and you talk to the founder of Wave Accounting and be like, you could have maybe stuck it out. And be like, yeah, sure, I could have. But I chose not to. Should have, so, could have, would have, yeah. Yeah, leave me alone. I'll go start something else next time. Wow. Um, awesome. Um, I have, a, I have a, a questions I want to ask you now about product and product development. Um, so there's a lot of frameworks out there. There's a whole lean up, lean startup methodology, jobs to be done. I just feel like a lot of people get too, especially entrepreneurs or product people, just get too uh, immersed um, or get too excited about these frameworks and not actually about the execution of it or what they need to get, what they need to do actually in order to make these formulas be successful for them. Um, do you? Let's talk about like those frameworks. Let's talk about I think the one that uh, uh, you are a proponent of, which is uh, DVF, which stands for Desirability Feasibility. Sorry, Desirability Viability Feasibility Framework. Um, and so, how do you implement these frameworks and methodologies within Highline, within um, your startups that you work with, or with your enterprises that you work with? Like. What is your process? What do you see as a successful path that uh, entrepreneurs alike or product people can take? Yeah, and so I would say that uh, the frameworks in my mind are guides to keeping us intellectually honest. Because founders, uh, not only founders, but founders are maybe the most notorious for this, are, are delusional. Right, uh, uh, and so uh, because we we're we're trying to believe something into existence, uh, and it's easy to believe our own hype. Uh, it's easy to think we can will things into existence. If I just think hard enough about it, it's it's going to happen. Or if I just physically put in enough time, it's going to happen. Which is certainly not always the case. So the frameworks in my mind are there to guide us towards being intellectually honest about the things that we're doing. Um, the, the act of using frameworks is not going to get you to the answer. You, you know, you use the word formula, they, they look like formulas in a way, but they're actually not formulas because, you know, two plus two always equals four. I'm not a PhD in math, but I'm pretty sure that's an actual formula. These are guides, 
they're not, you know, like you can't, you know, you can't just follow the steps in order and automatically win because we'd have a lot more people winning. Uh, and so that, that's how I think about them in general. It's, they're, they're just guides. Now, we use them at Highline Beta because we do a lot of work with big companies and startups to try to move them towards building successful businesses. Either sometimes with corporates, it's internal businesses, you know, that they're creating new ventures. With startups, it's helping them build startups. We found that DVF, um, this, this notion of desirability, viability, and feasibility, or desirability, feasibility, viability, from design thinking is a re it actually works to change your mindset and all all it's suggesting you do is figure out what your riskiest assumptions are rank them and identify them as desirability assumptions does anybody care feasibility can we build it and viability is there a, a business model why it works inside of larger companies is because they typically focus on feasibility and viability can we build it and can we make this spreadsheet look good, right? Which is like, can we make the business model look good? They often forget to figure out if a customer actually cares. And so DVF changes their mindset to say, you're right, we should, you know, we often start with in problems we have as an organization, not problems that folks on the outside have. So that works there. I think in, for startups, they're better at focusing on desirability first but you get a product person and a developer and a designer together and guess what they like to do? Build stuff, right? And so now we're just, we can execute faster than a big company can, but it, we may not be building the right things. So we like DVF because it anchors us in the assumptions that actually matter. And then, you know, I still, I, I, I still, I believe in the fundamentals of lean methodology to then say, if I know what my riskiest assumptions are, how do I run experiments to execute those? Um, I actually think that literally everything you do in product is basically an experiment. It's not it's not a hundred percent true, of course, right? If I'm gonna if I'm gonna fix a typo on my onboarding flow, it's technically not an experiment. I think that's fair. Fixing a bug is not an experiment. But anytime we're gonna build something new, it's basically an experiment because as confident as we may be in what it's gonna do, we're not a hundred percent sure. Right. So DVL helps us figure out what the experiments are based on the riskiest assumptions and lean the principle of just build something small, measure the results and learn and cycle and cycle and cycle through that process helps us actually uh, execute faster. It's interesting you say about enterprises don't get or I mean, don't think about desirability. So how do you change their mindset? And this could be, I think, just in general across any company of any size, because that is still, even with some of the startups that we work with, that unfortunately just one thing that is oftentimes missed. Like whether you are a first-time founder or a serial entrepreneur or you're the VP of innovation at some large enterprise, um, people get into sometimes this innovator's dilemma mindset. It's like, oh, I have this great idea, right? And they just go and build it. How do you communicate the value proposition of doing DVF uh, and really focusing on the desirability part. Like, what is that pitch that you make in terms of we really get need to go and figure out the desirability part first before we do anything? Right. So, not to be um, silly about it, but if you ask somebody, have you ever wasted time and money before? <laughs> the only answer to that question is yes, because everybody has wasted time and money. Would you like to waste less time and less money? 
The only answer to that question is yes. Let's try something different. That's it. And it's never that simple, but that's the pithy answer to it, right? which is, you know, and, and startups waste time and money. Big companies do it, but multiply it by a thousand, ten thousand, ten million, right? Like whatever you want to multiply it by, enormous amounts of time and money wasted building things nobody wants. So we start there. Uh, and then very often people understand intuitively that they have to solve an actual problem that matters. And what they're lacking is maybe the frameworks, maybe the permission in some cases to do it. In startups, that wouldn't be the case. The permission and then the confidence to do it. And the confidence is, this is true for, for you know big companies and startups, nobody really wants to go out and be told that their idea is lousy. Uh, and, and so that's scary for people. And so you need to give them some, some tools, some capabilities, some skills to say, okay, I'm not actually going out and saying like, do you want this thing from me? I'm going out and trying to understand the problems that they have because people are great at talking about their problems. They're pretty lousy at ideating around solutions. So I'm the solution guy. I'll figure out the solution. I'll figure out how to build the product, but I really need your help to tell me what direction I should go in. And so it, that's, that's more, you know, aside from being sort of um, you know, pithy about it, that's how we have to think about it. We gotta give people confidence. It's okay to go out. Um, and, and, and then the frameworks do give us some of those tools and skills. The other thing I would say is, um, and this is harder in large companies, easier in startups, is the vision part. So the vision part for, for me is, is something that the founder, the founders, and the team need to say, we want to go and, and change this in the world. And we're gonna stay pretty tried and true to that vision. That, but how we get there, totally open for debate and discussion. So we might have the wrong solution, we might have even the wrong, everything might be wrong, everything's up for debate for the most part, but you know the, the purpose of why we exist needs to be reasonably anchored. And why I say that's harder in big companies is because they're so, they're so massive, right? That the, the vision is sort of abstracted away from what I might be doing, whereas in a startup, it, it, should, be right, it should be right there. Was there any kind of, um, because this framework that we're talking about, I mean, it's been discussed before, it's, it's nothing net new, but I wanted to ask, was there a specific time example that you could think of where, you know, you were working on some sort of feature, you're working on a product, you know, with, you know, you know, in-house or whatever with the client and you're like, you know what, let's try it. Let's, let's give this a shot. And then you had that aha moment. You're like, holy shit, this actually works. Or was it like a series of experiments to kind of get you to that point? Yeah, I think it's always a series of experiments, um, and and I, I like to um, I like to have a lot of conviction on things to okay. get it. You know, I said I get excited about things, and I get excited about things pretty easily. But I'm happy to drop it when the market tells me I'm wrong. You know, so I can I I, I can I think it's like falling in love and falling out of love really fast and being completely okay with that. It's like, oh my God, that's a great idea. We should go do that thing. It's like, all right, well, let's run an experiment. Nope, we were completely wrong. Good, throw it in the garbage. Let's move to the next one. So that's sort of the mindset I'm in where you're really not falling in love with the solution, but you can get excited about it. And I think that's, 
the risk of following the, these frame, you know, DVF and lean and these models too um, religiously, like to become a zealot about them, is you actually never get excited about anything anymore. Mm. You know, you're just like you're following a methodical process, and you've taken out the ambiguity, the excitement, the gut out of it. You know, uh, you know, I, I co-wrote Lean Analytics, and the book has the title has analytics in it. So you think, oh, it's all data, 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 and right at the very beginning, we're like, you're gonna have to use your gut as well. So. To me, you can't eliminate the frameworks. If you follow them to the T, you almost eliminate your instincts and your gut, and we don't want that, but we want you to not hold on to those so tightly that when the data tells you that doesn't make any sense, you can't let go. Right. So that's how, I th that's how I think about it. It's like you're just in love, out of love, in love, out of love, in love, out of love, and just constant until you find something where you're in love and it works, and then, oh, then that's, that's magic. Sounds like an emotional roller coaster. <laughs> it is. I think, well, I think it is, and, and it's a it's a good point because um, not everybody has the capacity to handle the roller coaster, yeah. the emotional ups and downs, and also the the stamina required to survive long enough to figure it out. That's really hard, and that's hard in in, in a corporate environment, and and it's hard in, in startup environments. So it, it is an emotional. You know, I, I say it in sort of like a fun way, like a fall in love, but it it, it sucks. Like parts of it suck. Um, I wanted to maybe save the last few questions. I wanted to ask about, and maybe going a bit deeper into the desirability component. What exercises do you do in order to get comfortable, or you know, you know, actually do this part of uh, of, of the framework or the model? Like, is it a series of surveys? Is it user interviews? Is it sending up a landing page, throwing ads to it? Is it, I don't know. It's all, of the above. it's all, it's all of the above. We, we always, 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 or almost always start with talking to humans, um, which by the way is the name of a really good book, um, an ebook, it's like 100 pages long, but um, talking, talking to people. We almost always start with, let's just go talk to people. Um, I, I back up and I start with, probably start with secondary research first, which is just, okay, aside from megatrends, but what else is happening in the market? What does the startup landscape look like in this space? What seem to be things that are going on? And then that helps us figure out what sorts of things we want to go to um, users and talk about, particularly when we're talking about starting a new business. Right. If, we're, if we're talking about you know, features or adding to an existing product, we already have a user base that we can uh, most likely leverage. But it really is talking to people first. We Oftentimes for us, as we're talking to folks and extracting problems from them, because we're not talking about solutions or ideas, we're just, you know, I think of this like day in the life. Like, you know, if we know, if we think we know who our target is, what does the day in the life look like for that person? Very often we'll go to value proposition testing after that. And that is the sort of, again, if it's B2C, B2B can be a little trickier, but it is the sort of let's get landing page up, let's get ads going, not because I'm trying to prove that Facebook is the right channel or that the cost of acquisition will work. I don't, we, we don't care about any of that. We just care about does this value prop, if we put it out into the world, resonate? And who does it resonate with? And how much does it resonate? So you, know, you sort of go from interviewing to you know, value prop testing to concept testing to prototype testing 
and you're sort of moving along with increasing levels of fidelity, if you will. Hmm. Uh, and and the you know although sometimes that work feels slow-ish, um, the investment in it is a lot less than writing actual code. If we're if we're talking about software. And so once we've written code and we start writing code, it gets much harder for people to abandon. And so we would much prefer to spend time and energy swirling in this ambiguous you know, research phase, if you will, mm-hmm. before we're pretty confident in what we think that solution looks like. So a- as many proxies as we can to, to give us the confidence. True. Um. Earlier in the call, you mentioned something about intellectual honesty. I didn't get a chance to ask you about that. And I think you were mentioning uh, that around the lean startup approach, if I'm not mistaken. Like, what did you mean by intellectual honesty? Yeah, so, so, so I think you know, founders, particularly founders, uh, you know, in order to fight, which is you know, sort of what being running a startup feels like sometimes, that you have to sort of surround yourself with this, what I would describe as a reality distortion field, right? It's like, I just have to have so much confidence in myself and my co-founder or co-founders or the team I've built um, to, to get up every morning and, and keep going. Because it is difficult. It is a difficult journey for people to take. Uh, and most people will fail. And most people will fail multiple times. Right. And so you surround yourself with this reality distortion field in order to give yourself the confidence that what you're doing makes sense. And the problem is when that becomes actual reality for you, when there is no evidence that you're solving a real problem or that your solution has any traction, so on and so forth, that is a path to failure. You are going to fail at some point in the future. And you're, you know, I describe it as you're running 100 miles an hour, and then when you hit the wall, and you hit the wall hard. So methodologies like lean startup jobs to be done is a, is another really good example of it. it's just it's sort of it forces us to be honest with ourselves about what we know and what we think we know and what we absolutely do not know and what, as soon as you do that and you're honest about that and then you can say if we don't figure out this particular thing if this particular belief we have mm-hmm. is wrong the whole business is going to collapse then the only thing that matters is figuring out if that one thing is right or wrong. Not the color of the buttons or the pricing or whatever help you're, whatever else you're doing, that's intellectual honesty. Um, you know, and, and again, founders have to be um, delusional sometimes. It, I mean, if you've ever pitched for money, yeah. if you've ever pitched an investor, it is an exercise in delusion. At the early stage, that's what you're doing. You're selling something that doesn't exist. And when, when, a, when an investor says to you, well, what does traction look like? Oh, you paint a picture of traction. Oh, you know, if people love it. And it uh, well, what's the future P&L going to look like? Oh, my God, look at my beautiful P&L. Look at my Excel spreadsheet. It's all nonsense. So that's what I mean by intellectual honesty is, you know, at some point we have to paint these nice pictures that everything is wonderful and rosy but if we're not actually being honest about where we are with things we're not going to solve the problems that matter in our business and we're going to fail so we're trying to de-risk all the time right we're trying to minimize the likelihood of failure uh, while simultaneously not just protecting against failure because then we can't actually win but you know we're trying to win by 
being delusional and honest at the same time. What characteristics or what traits would you look for in that entrepreneur? You know, around the emotional honesty part, intellect, intellectual honesty part. Yeah. So I think you know this is where, again, you know, we, you know, I would never go to a founder and say, "Do you practice lean startup?" Because if you don't, I'm not investing. That that makes no sense. But you would ask a founder, "What are the assumptions that you think matter today, that are going to lead to the success or failure of your startup?" And if the founder says, "I just need more customers." Or the founder says, um, I don't know. I actually don't know what the risks are in this business, right? Or uh, there are no risks. Uh, I'm 100% confident we are absolutely going to win. It's a slam dunk. Those are all signals that the person is not thinking about things in sort of this systematic way. Because while there is no formula, there are better ways and worse ways of doing things. And so, so that's what you're looking for is not admission that the person doesn't know. Right? I'm not looking to say, ha, 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 you don't know what, what it's going to look like. I'm just looking for actual, an understanding that there are risks, that there are real assumptions, and that you're prioritizing them in the right way. I remember you know, a long time ago, um, a founder that I was working with coming to me and saying, we just need more PR. It was something like that, right? If we could just get more PR, that would get us more users and would solve all our problems. And I remember looking at it and saying, you already have, I can't remember the number, a thousand users and nobody's using the product. So what do you think PR is gonna do? What is it gonna drive 10,000 users that don't use the product? We're solving the wrong problem. So that's to me what intellectual honesty looks like. And the trait is belief, while I'm rigorously testing all my beliefs to make sure they're right. And that's an awesome answer and I think a great way to to wrap up. Uh, ben, this was amazing. Thank you so much for talking about everything that you did today. I really appreciate it. I'm sure the audience is going to love it as well. And for everybody who's listening, thank you guys for subscribing and sub supporting our show. We'll be back with more uh, next week in our next episode. So thank you again, Ben. Thank you.